Brought to you by Essentials by Temi. Created with luxury and wellness in mind, Essentials by Temi is an organic, plant-based skincare line founded by Nigerian-Canadian beauty advisor Temi Shobowale. Create an account at EssentialsbyTemi.com to be notified when a new batch is ready to order. Welcome to Le Bon. I am your host, Evelyn. So today's episode will focus on the delicate balancing of culture one experiences being an immigrant who moved to the United States. So I came across this Reddit post. By the way, side note, love Reddit. Oh, love it. It's very interesting. If you're not on Reddit, go because the things people be posting on there is crazy. Anyway, I found this post on Reddit and I feel like it really captures how I've been feeling especially in recent years in regards to my culture and my heritage. So Olivia GG writes, longing for my parents' culture. Growing up and even now, I'm longing to be more involved with my Peruvian heritage. I notice my desire to learn more about my Peruvian culture when I watch Peruvian television shows more than my parents do watch movies from Peru or about Peruvian history, and get excited about anything related to Peru. This has even gotten to the point where I've looked up a major in Peruvian studies, which doesn't exist, sadly. Has anyone experienced a longing to be more involved in their parents' culture, like do dances or even sing their music? I want to know what I can do so I can feel more connected. Something related to this would be amazing as a career or a major. Now, I feel like as time goes on, I relate more and more to this sentiment of longing for the culture of my birth country, because I personally have zero memories of my birth country since I came here so young. So like I mentioned in the intro to the podcast, I was born in Ziegenshaw, Senegal, which is a part of the Casamance region of Senegal. So my father got a teaching job and we moved to the U.S. when I was only 11 months old with my two older sisters and my mom and dad. So my father's job was at a French immersion school. So as a bonus, we got to attend that school instead of going to whatever neighborhood school we were supposed to go to. So being at a French immersion school, I was getting eight hours a day in a truly French speaking environment. And any one of my friends who went to elementary school know what I mean because they're all fluent in French. When I say eight hours a day of French, I don't mean like little periods here and there where you take a French class. I mean that we had 45 minutes for English class where we were allowed to speak English to each other, the teacher and blah, blah, blah. But outside of that one block of a class, we were not allowed to speak English. Like you could lose privileges if you got caught in the hallway with your homegirl talking in English. And I have a lot of friends who can vouch that that is absolutely true. So 
very interesting. But my point is I was fully immersed. I was getting eight hours in a French speaking environment and then I would go home and my parents would be speaking French to me as well. I became fluent very easily, like as easily as I know English is how well I know French. So um, in Senegal, while French is the official language of the country, meaning that government is conducted in French, school is taught in French, business is conducted in French for the most part, only 40% of the population speak French. So Wolof is considered to be the people's language with 50% of the population claiming Wolof as their first language. Now, 70% of the population uses it to communicate with speakers of other Senegalese languages. It creates a sort of cultural connection among the people of Senegal. So there's all kinds of indigenous tribal languages in Senegal. I don't know all of them, but I know that there are many. I know that there's Wolof. I know that there's Jolafoni, the tribe that my father claims, and he also speaks Jola. There's Mandinka. There's Senegalese Creole. So there's all kinds of languages in Senegal, but Wolof is the one language that connects all the people. It's the people's language. So my parents spoke French at home, but the use of Wolof was a little different. Um, my parents used Wolof to communicate with each other without us knowing. So if they wanted to talk about the kids or talk about, you know, whatever it is the kids shouldn't be privy to, they would speak to each other in Wolof. And I remember being a kid and being like, yo, this is not cool. Y'all don't get to have like a secret language, like, excuse me. And then come to find out it's like the language of my people and y'all are holding it hostage so you can have a secret conversation. I was upset. And, <laughs> and my parents are, you know, also part of the group that they speak different Senegalese languages, but Wolof is their common ground. Where I was born in Ziegenshaw, about 70% of the population speaks Jolafoni, which is my father's tribe. On the other hand, my mother spoke a variation of Senegalese Creole. So Wolof was their language that they like came together on. Like they both agreed on Wolof when it came to if they weren't speaking English or French, they were speaking Wolof. So because of their need for some kind of privacy from their children, we didn't have the same opportunity to learn Wolof the way that we did with French, the way that we were completely immersed in a French-speaking environment. Now, my older sister was six when we moved to the U.S., so she still understands Wolof. She understands the Wolof that she learned growing up until she was six, but she isn't fluent. Like she can't have a fluent conversation in Wolof. So this lack of language always made me feel a bit of a disconnect to my country of birth. And that sentiment was only reinforced when my parents' friends used to call the house when I was little. So, you know, it's the 90s, the phone rings, whoever's closest to it picks up because we don't know who it's for or, you know, it was before caller ID or whatever. Phone rings, you pick it up. It's one of my parents' friends. And they'd be like, Nangadef, um, which is how you say hello in Wolof. And I knew to respond with Mangifirek, which is the response to Nangadef. But after that point, I did not speak Wolof. That was all I had. But of course, they would go off in Wolof and start, you know, talking to me, asking me questions and stuff like that. And I'd always have to interrupt them and be like, mm, sorry, 
I don't, I don't speak Wolof. And they would always be like, hey, ma soeur, comment est-ce que c'est possible qu'une Sénégalaise ne parle pas Wolof? Which in English from French is, hey, my sister, how is it possible that a Senegalese person doesn't speak Wolof? Like they had a lot of fire for me. And even at six, I was like, hold up. If y'all have so much beef with this problem, talk to the people who can do something about it. I'm six. I can't teach myself a language that people are holding hostage from me. I'd be like, I literally would tell them like, okay, I hear you and I understand you. I feel the same way. Tell your homies that I'm about to give the phone to, to teach me Wolof instead of using it as like this secret language. But, you know, like having a secret language is pretty lit. So I imagine they weren't ready to let go of that. <laughs> But I did try to take matters into my own hands. So first on the list of things that I did was I took it in college. So at the school that I went to, one of the French professors was Senegalese and he taught a Wolof course and I took it. For two semesters, If he didn't teach it like back to back. It was like one semester on, one semester off. But I was able to take two semesters of Wolof. Now, even though I dedicated that time to taking the classes, I didn't really learn much. And I'm going to tell you why. Okay. First of all, it was college. Now, that's a whole nother podcast <laughs> because a lot happened there. But my point is, is that it was like, I think sophomore year of college. So I was like really busy with my social life. I was way invested in my social life. I had just moved out of my parents' house. I was like, I'm free. So I was acting a fool. Not to say the school wasn't important, but I just wasn't in a space that I was going to retain that kind of important information. Secondly, I am a really good student. Like I'm a good test taker. I can regurgitate information like real well. But the problem is that doesn't always translate into retention, into, okay, I learned this, I'm going to remember it for like the rest of my life or for a few years until I brush up on it again. Like, no, I was good at, you give me information in January, I can keep it up here till May. Once that test is over, it's gone. I don't know where it went, but it's gone. So there was that, the fact that I just wasn't retaining it because, you know, I'm a good student, but I'm not. If you're not invested in it, if you're just doing it to get a good grade, you're going to get a good grade, but you're not going to remember anything. And then also third and most importantly, I wasn't five anymore. You know, when you're little learning another language, if you're immersed enough in it is like, you don't even have to think about it. It just becomes a part of the words that come out of your mouth. So I feel like it was a missed opportunity when I was little and all up in my parents' face, like, when are y'all going to teach me something? You know, like if they didn't do it, then it wasn't going to happen. Like I just, I just don't retain information the same way. What's interesting also is that my partner has a somewhat similar experience, different household, different life, but similar experience. So he was born and raised in Miami to parents who were both born in Cuba. His mother came to the U.S. as a child. His father came to the U.S. as an adult. So even though his grandma lived with him and they spoke Spanish and she cooked Cuban food, he, his mother was essentially raised as an American. And then his father came later, but he told me an interesting story about how his dad used to practice his English with his kids. He would speak English with his kids so that he could practice and be better because he worked at a bank. And I think that it's really interesting because immigrant parents, when their kids 
are in the U.S., obviously they're learning English very easily, like second nature, like I was talking about earlier. So they take that as a, okay, well, they're just learning it second nature. I, this is a good person to practice with because they're very good at it. But the problem is, is that that practice isn't reciprocated, right? So he didn't get the opportunity to practice his Spanish with his dad because his dad's priority was to speak better English. So Spanish wasn't even on the table. It wasn't even thought about. So I thought that was a really interesting thing that we both had in common. I mean, I speak French, but I don't speak Wolof. So I can understand like he does speak Spanish, but he's just not fluent in the way that people in Miami expect you to be fluent in Spanish. Also another topic for another podcast, but I digress. Anyway, so as my parents maneuvered their new home country and tried their best to assimilate, they were also trying to make sure that their kids knew about their culture. And I'm sure that that was a very, very difficult balance. But one way that my dad kept our culture alive was storytelling. So in Senegal, there are storytellers, which could be anyone really. And then there are what are known as griots. And griots devoted their whole lives to knowing the stories, fables, and genealogies of their tribes and people. It was a very, very well-respected profession to be a griot. It's passed down from generation to generation, and it requires years of training and repetition and memorization. Um, they used to travel with kings as kind of like a walking, talking history book. The first griot in history was mentioned way back in the fourth century as like a part of a king's court. And so um, they were so important that, you know how like now during times of war, it's like egregious and a war crime to kill a medic. That essentially was how they treated griots because killing a griot is the equivalent of burning down a library now. That's how much information that they held. So they made it known to enemies, even during wartime, like you could kill the rest of us, but do not kill our griot because we need that history to continue. There's a huge emphasis on oral storytelling and people use legends and myths to preserve history and wisdom across generations and ethnic boundaries. And it's very entertaining. My dad is the ultimate storyteller. And you can ask anyone who went to school with us and they'll tell you this is absolutely true. I remember being a kid and he would tell a story. One time he told a story in like, I think my, my third grade class and he like turned down the lights and he would do all these voices. And it was like, you were like shook. Some of it was scary. It's usually like a scary story to teach kids to stay on the straight and narrow, but they were great stories nonetheless. One of the stories that is very big in Senegal is the story of Senegal's birth, its beginning. So the story is that there were two sisters on a small boat that perished at the Pointe de Saint-Gomar, a small Atlantic island just north of the River Gambia, and it split. So the small boat split and the sisters were separated. And it said that the survivors um, who followed one of the sisters, Aguerre, headed south, and they are the ancestors of the Jola people, while the other survivors went north with the other sister and became the ancestors of the Wolof people. So, um, yeah, that's actually the story of Senegal's beginning. And um, it's very interesting that it's a story like that. But um, my favorite story 
from all the stories I've heard from my father is the story of the concurrent. So the concurrent is described as this super tall, super scary figure covered head to toe in straw. And he's supposed to ward off evil spirits. So there's a traditional male initiation in Ziganshaw. It's called Futampaf. And it only happens every 15 to 20 years. And so the ceremony is like a months-long process. It involves boys retreating to a secluded forest where village elders teach them adult responsibilities. It's supposed to be like the passage from boyhood to manhood. And it culminates with the circumcision. So um, the concurrent is supposed to be the, he's supposed to be a figure that wards off evil spirits that threaten the boys during their passage to manhood. Now, if you need a more visual version of this story, our girl Beyonce did a phenomenal job of telling it in Black is King. So if you've seen Black is King, the, um, it's on Disney, Disney plus. Um, it's the story of like Simba as he becomes the, the main lion. Right. And so in black is King, Beyonce follows this young boy and throughout the story, you know, he comes across adversity. He comes across issues. He has to be mature. And so there's one point in the story and the song is called Ja'arai and the young boy from throughout the story up, up until this point, he there's a there's like a 20-year-old man now, and he looks in the mirror, but the mirror changes to the little boy to tell you that this is the little boy. And then it changes back into this 20-year-old man. So the point being, the little boy is getting to be a man. He's on that journey to manhood. And so throughout that song, the young boy from earlier, you see him going out, succumbing to all kinds of temptation. There's partying, there's drinking, there's women. And then all of a sudden, the music slows down and the concurrent starts climbing up the car that he's in. And it's like super scary. And he literally goes flying out of that car <laughs> back onto the right path. And so that's kind of the idea that the concurrent instills fear in his heart and drags him back onto the right path while he becomes a man away from temptation. So that was so cool to see in Black is King. I felt so proud. I cried. Thank you for that, Beyonce. I loved it. I really did. I was like, oh, my God. I was watching with my boyfriend. I was like, babe, that's the concurrent. And he was like, what is the concurrent? And I had to pause it and explain it to him. Be like, oh, they're passing into manhood. Now he ain't a boy no more. So I was very excited to see that. Shout out to Beyonce for doing that for me because it, it, it meant a lot, sis. It meant a lot. <laughs> Moving on. Um. Another way that my mother kept our culture alive was through the social customs surrounding food. And I'll say my mother and father because they both contributed. But um, a lot of social customs revolve around food and recipes of our country. For instance, it is customary in Senegalese culture to, one, as a family, eat from the same bowl. And then also to eat with your hands. So I remember... When I was younger, we had guests from Senegal come and we just sat on the floor. We ate with our hands. And I remember 
I was maybe school aged at that point. So I'd gone to school and eaten like the customary American way. And even before, what am I saying? Before that, we would eat with like a knife and a fork. So I remember sitting down and being like, man, this is so cool that this is how we do it in Senegal. Like this is so different from anything that we do in the United States when it comes to eating. Like you you can eat pizza with your hands, but like rice and fish with sauce, like you are expected to use a fork and a knife. So I just thought that was really exciting as a kid to be like oh yeah look at our culture doing different stuff we different but (laughs) but we didn't really do it um outside of when we had guests and I think that the reason my parents did that is because coming from Senegal or really any country can be very jarring and I think they just wanted to create a sense of familiarity for people coming from Senegal like yes everything is different people in the street are different you're in a completely different country but you can find comfort in coming to our home and eating the Senegalese way. So that was really interesting as a kid. I was very excited about that. Um, And I think that was the first time I noticed that there are stark differences between the customs of Senegal and what I know to be like regular life in the U.S. That was the first time I was like, this is different. This is definitely very different. Um, Another social custom around food is cola nuts. So since ancient times, cola nuts have been known as a quick fix energy boost. They were in the original recipe for Coca-Cola, hence Coca-Cola. Anyway, it's a very popular social activity to just sit there and chew cola nuts with your homies. Um, I remember trying it as a kid and what stands out the most is the bitterness. They were so bitter. I think I only tried cola nuts once. If I ever saw them again in our house, I was like, "Mm, no, thank you. I'm okay. I don't need that in my life. That's gross. So, (laughs) so it wasn't, wasn't my fave of the, um, of the traditional Senegalese things to eat and drink. Not not my favorite. But one social custom around food and drinking and stuff that I really enjoyed was what's known as the Ataya Tea Ceremony. And it actually, to this day, still plays a very crucial role in social life in Senegal. So the Ataya Tea Ceremony is a long process where Chinese gunpowder green tea is brewed in a kettle poured into small glasses, and then you pour it back and forth between the kettle and the glass to create a thick foam at the top. And then the first cup is, or the first glass, I should say, is very strong and very bitter. Now they add sugar and mint as you go along, but even so, just because it's the first cup, it's so bitter. There was one time we tried it, it was terrible, that first cup, I was like, no, 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 no. I'll wait. I'll sit here and wait for them other them other few cups that are coming. But over the course of the of time, the tea would get sweeter and have men and it was nice. And it was fun because while you sit there and you wait for the tea to be poured, your my dad was telling stories about Senegal and how he grew up and the way he was raised and you know the concurrent and all kinds of things. So that's kind of the point. It can take up to three hours, but It's supposed to be like this time to bond and talk and develop camaraderie and closeness as a family or as friends. So I really enjoyed the Ataya tea ceremony. And it was a nice excuse to stay up late because you're like all hopped up on caffeine. Even as a kid, I remember being like, this is awesome. I get to stay up and listen to scary stories. So that was also a, a very 
fun part of learning about my heritage and my culture. Everything else as it relates to food customs, I will say I learned from my mother and my sister. Um, my sister, both, my two older sisters are incredible cooks. They really know how to throw together a Senegalese dish. Um, I'm a really good assistant in the kitchen. Um, I know how to make Senegalese dishes. I actually made my boyfriend yassa, which is traditional um, casamance meal, which is just rice, marinated chicken and lemon juice and like onions and garlic and stuff. But, um, but my sisters are top tier <laughs> when it comes to cooking. They are the goats. They're so good at it. Like they don't even got to think about it. If I need a recipe or I need to know how to do something, I hit them up because I'm going to mess it up on my own. But they got all the information that I need. So um, that's always nice. Um, but one thing that is difficult about balancing these two cultures in the U.S. is that it can be hard to talk to people who don't have foreign parents about the problems you face. Like most people can't relate. I'm really lucky because I grew up in PG County in the DMV. So it's a very culturally diverse area. I have a lot of friends who have immigrant parents, so they could relate. But even that has limitations. Like I have a Filipino friend and her parents are Catholic. And so she can relate to me on the way that our Catholic parents act, you know, in terms in regards to their religion and their upbringing and stuff. But even that has limits because she's Filipino and I'm African. So there are stark differences in the way that our interactions are with our parents. And even even like my African friends, I can relate to them, but there's also limitations on that. Like it can differ. The parenting styles can differ. So it is nice to have friends who can relate, but it's still very difficult to grow up in the U.S. and watch your American friends do things that are totally deemed normal, totally deemed like not out of the ordinary at all. And then to ask your parents to do the same thing and they look at you like, have you lost your mind? We don't do that around here. Like we just don't do that. For example, when I was, <laughs> when I was in high school, I really wanted to go to a New Year's Eve party my junior year. And my parents did not like to let me sleep over. I can probably count on my hand how many people's houses I slept over as a child in my youth. Cause it just, it just wasn't a thing sleeping over at somebody's house. Like, what is that? So when this new year's Eve thing came up, I was like, I gotta go. I gotta find a way to convince them. I did like a PowerPoint presentation of why I should be allowed to go to this party. Like I have a 3.8 GPA, which should be a 4.0 once the grades come out and I can get my math tests up or whatever. You know, I'll do chores for weeks on end after. I'll do this and I'll do that. Like I had to make, I had to negotiate to go to that party. <laughs> and it was like, they let me go, but I think that was the last time I went to like a fun party after that. Like that was it. That was like one and done. You had fun. Like hold on to that memory, girl, because that's it. So <laughs> it can be really difficult to see your friends get to do things that are totally normal and not weird, but are out of the question for your foreign parents, like not happening. And um, it can be hard to accept and embrace the customs of a new country for your parents because 
even if they do their best to blend in and assimilate, there's still that constant tug of war between what they know and what they grew up with versus the way that things are done and approached in this new country. But at the end of the day, my duality is what makes me this interesting human that I am now. And I have my parents to thank for that because they were able to, you know, raise us in the United States and still be able to have us hold on to some of our culture, appreciate our culture. And I am very thankful for that. Um, It's important to know your past and let it guide you and let your, I'm all about like letting my ancestors guide me, tapping into my ancestors and what they did. It was crazy and ironic. I started uh, gardening during the pandemic and I just chose like tomatoes, bell peppers to start. Those were like the two plants that I decided, let me start with that. And over time I started doing research about the Jola people of Ziegenshoch and I found out that that's one two of the main crops that my ancestors have been farming for ever. So I thought that was really interesting to find out that I'm doing the same thing that the ones who came before me did and I just instinctively chose those crops. So I say go home and open a dialogue with your parents about culture and ancestry. I mean, there's so much there and a lot of our immigrant parents left behind a big part of their life in another country to come here in hopes of better opportunities. So open a dialogue. You never know what you might find out from your heritage and your lineage. But that is it for this week's episode of Le Bon. Thank you so much for joining me. And I hope to see you next week on our next episode. But make sure you download Le Bon on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, make sure to check out the visual version on YouTube so that you can see the concurrent that I described. And also make sure to follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Simply Evelyn for more content and a sneak peek at next week's episode. A bientôt, mes amis. Trouble sleeping? Try Zula Essentials THC-free premium CBD oil. Zula Essentials is the premier CBD wellness brand made with USA-grown hemp and created for women by women. Use code EVELYN10 for 10% off your first order. 